Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the report used to kill Hamilton's LRT project does not show or explain the cost predictions that were used by the government to try to justify that move. We'll delve into that on the show today. U.S. President Donald Trump announced they'd be placing a 10% tariff on some aluminum imports from Canada. Our government will respond. We'll discuss that, the pros and cons. And there is a class action lawsuit against some long-term care homes here in Ontario over the conditions and the result of those bad conditions to do with COVID-19. One of the lawyers involved in the lawsuit joins us on the program. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a report that uh, was released today. The Hamilton Spectator, with their Freedom of Information request, uh, received a copy of the report about Hamilton's LRT project. Now, you may remember, uh, just to bring you up to speed on this, that the the province had said it was a go, and after the uh, municipal election, uh, a couple of years ago now, when Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger was re-elected, uh, Doug Ford said, look, you know, he's an LRT guy, and if that's what the people want, that's what we're going to get. So uh, there were a lot of shocked faces and, and attitudes last December when uh, Transportation Minister Carolyn Mulroney uh, rode into town one day and announced that uh, they were suspending their support for LRT. And uh, <laughs> that was a quite a day, to be frank about it. And she suggested at that time the cost overruns of about $5.5 billion for the cost of the project, uh, but never indicated exactly where they were going to get that number. Well... The uh, report that uh, the Spectator finally got a copy of uh, suggests uh, and and goes through uh, a number of the the uh, costs here for LRT, and it's pretty much exactly what we thought it was going to be, and nowhere near the five point five billion dollars that uh, Minister Mulroney talked about. Now, to be fair, uh, a lot of this report apparently is redacted, and we're not even sure why that's happening. But uh, we're trying to get some clarity on this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. This is uh, this. If, if anybody who is looking for information and trying to get some clarity on this, uh, it's great that the Spectator got a copy of this, and I know that uh, opposition leader Andrea Horvath is also has a copy of this, and she's releasing it for public documentation uh, as we speak right now. So maybe we'll get some more clarity as we get to read the actual report itself. But uh, the the big question that we had in December is still the big question today, Marvin. Where did they get their numbers from? Yeah, exactly. So um, let, let's start with the glass half full. It is okay. clear that the $1 billion cost that we had for the LRT was a bit of pie in the sky. That because of the amount of time it's taken to get the project approved, nearly a, a decade delay, costs have crept up and the the report that to at least you can read this report between the black lines says yeah it, it was going to cost more than a billion dollars that the base construction cost was around 1.3 billion dollars um, and then they put in at least a half a billion dollar for contingencies and you and I know that often large public projects get delayed during construction and there are cost overruns so the report does suggest that that billion number was a bit pie in the sky and that it was going to be higher. And I don't think that shocks anybody, especially no. given the amount of time it took to get the project off the ground. The problem is that when you add in these contingency costs, these cost overruns, and then something else they did, which they did with no other capital project like this in Ontario, is they also put in what they call the lifetime cost or the life cycle cost. Those are all the operational costs. And again, no surprise, over the next 25 years, operational costs were roughly equal to the initial capital construction costs. 
So to run this thing, to hire the workers, to do the maintenance, would be another $1.3 billion. So 1.3 plus 1.3, you get to $2.6 billion. Throw in a contingency, $2.8 billion. Okay, sure, fine. But we don't get anywhere near $5.5 billion, and, and I guess we have to assume that in that redacted part, all those black lines, somewhere in there, maybe there's justification for why 2.8 becomes 5.5. But this report certainly isn't going to put that to bed. But with that in mind, and you're right, we're going to speculate at this point because we haven't seen the redacted sections, and we may never. Uh, what other costs are there besides the ones that they've already outlined here? Like you say, a lot of people were surprised and, and quite frankly, angered that uh, when the province started to do some number crunching here, that they did include those lifetime operational costs, because that wasn't supposed to be part of the bargain. But uh, And some are suggesting that they simply put that in there to try to inflate the cost to justify canceling the project. Mm. But even with those costs that you've just mentioned, Marvin, they're nowhere near $5.5 billion. I mean, what else are they going to talk about? What other costs are there besides what they've already done? Well, nothing comes to my mind. And, and Bill, just to go back to your first comment, uh, LRT is not unique to Hamilton. Uh, this... Uh, if you go back to the Kathleen Wynne years, public transit was a big topic for her. And so there were LRTs being built in Toronto, the uh, cross city, uh, the uh, uh, line that they were building sort of in northern Toronto. Ottawa had an LRT. Uh, Waterloo was having an LRT. So <clears throat> LRTs have been constructed in many places, and in none of them have the lifetime operational costs been factored in. So when the government talked about construction costs or the capital cost. They did not include those life cycle costs. Why then was Hamilton uh, singled out for the use of this? Uh, so again, I'm going to say 5.5 billion for a, a capital cost is not justified. This even the 2.6 billion dollars is not really justified for this. And I think, Bill, why this is still on uh, a burner in the oven, if you will, or on the stove, is that we've just gone through COVID-19. Uh, certainly hurt our economy. Uh, first half of the year, our economy sh uh, shrunk into a recession. We're looking better now. We're coming out of that. But uh, still, the, what typically happens as you come out of a recession is government looks for some shovel-ready, quote-unquote, shovel-ready infrastructure projects. And LRT is, even though many of the people working on it have left the city, is still a, a shovel-ready project. And there are many people saying, you know, this would be a great time to spend the money build an LRT in Hamilton, if nothing else, for economic recovery. And you put those two things together, it, it, it actually doesn't seem that outrageous to do that under, under some money, perhaps some joint federal and provincial money, uh, because the cost doesn't seem to be justified anywhere near that $5.5 billion total. The other element of this, too, and, and I know this is part of the discussion we had back in December when the announcement was made that they were pulling away from the project, was when they mentioned these 25-year life cycle costs of, of running this thing, uh, what they don't include in that is the economic uplift that's going to come to the city as a result of this. Now, we can argue and debate exactly how much that's going to be, but there's going to be some, anyway, that would cancel out at least some of those uh, life cycle costs that they've talked about. In other words, on, on a balance sheet, okay, this is what it's going to cost us over the next 20 years, but look at the economic uplift we're going to get, the, you know, the new construction, the new taxes that are going to come from a result of that. They didn't factor any of that in. No, no, they didn't. And, and again, you're absolutely right. The route that we're talking about is a route that basically runs from McMaster University in the city's west end to Eastgate Mall in the city's east end. Now, that corridor um, is a prime development corridor, and it, there's no doubt about it that over the next 25 years, with or without an LRT, there would be some development along that route. 
But the feeling is that the LRT would be more of a catalyst to that development. In other words, mm-hmm. condo projects, uh, office tower projects, even retail projects would be accelerated and happen much sooner than before, and thus we would get more of this economic benefit than we if we just let nature take its course. It is hard to put a dollar sign on that because, quite correctly, I think developers who would be prepared to put this kind of money in have taken the view of show me. We've heard so much about this. I'm not, I'm not going to start building buildings on speculation. I know they take two years, three years from start to finish, but I'm not going to put a shovel in the ground until you put a shovel in the ground on this LRT project, again, because it, it's almost become mythology in, in Hamilton. Uh, so I, I can't tell you who's going to step forward and what those specific projects are going to be, but uh, there would be benefits. Now, who gets those benefits? Some of that money would go to the province. Some of that money would go to the city of Hamilton directly. Some of it would go to create jobs and economic employment for truly thousands of people. And and I think if you're going to go for that all-in costing, then you have to also look at the all-in benefits, which were left out. There's no sign of those in this redacted report. Exactly. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for uh, trying to add some clarity to this. Really do appreciate it. Glad to be with you this morning, Bill. Take care. Uh, I want to get some uh, council reaction to this, too. Unfortunately, Fred Eisenberger is unavailable uh, today. Uh, We talked with the the mayor uh, a couple of hours ago, but uh, we'll hook up with him a little bit later on, probably early next week. But I want to bring uh, John Paul Danko into the conversation, uh, who obviously uh, relatively new to council, but, boy, he's uh, up to his eyeballs in the LRT debate, as everyone else on council is these days. John Paul, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us on the program today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I, I, you haven't seen the report yet. I guess uh, not too many people have at this stage, but you have seen the story and the reporting on this uh, earlier this morning. What's your reaction to what you saw? Well, I'm not surprised. Um, I think we knew back in January that the amount that was uh, approved by the provincial treasury was $3.7 billion. So the reporting in The Spectator uh, today seems to confirm that number. So if you add together what their reporting was in this report as the total capital cost of $2.3 billion plus the operation and maintenance cost of $1.3 billion, that gives you, you know, uh, 3.6. So it's, it's not very far off of what the information that we had in January was. So it's, it, it is nice to see that confirmed. Since then, um, obviously, there's been quite a bit of uh, movement on this file with uh, Carolyn Mulroney's, the Minister of Transportation, uh, press conference in Hamilton to cancel the project and then backtracking on that, forming the uh, the task force and then the task force's recommendations, which were uh, tabled in April. And uh, we're essentially back to recommending uh, high-order transit for the city of Hamilton. So, um you know, it, like I said, it's nice to get confirmation that, you know, it seems that we, we were right <laughs> right from the beginning. Um, but at the same time, the province seems willing now to uh, that LRT is still on the table for the city of Hamilton. That's what we're working towards. We think it is anyway. I mean, they're being pretty evasive about that as well. i got to ask you something else, though, that, that troubled me when I read this the first thing this morning. Uh, and, and I'm glad that, you know, the spectator finally got a copy of this. But uh, the, uh, from their reporting, they say oh, almost a third of this report is redacted. In other words, it's all blacked out. My question is why? This is a public document about a public project that was well, you know, vetted by everybody. Why are they redacting information from this thing? 
That's a really good question. Um, redacted from the public, uh, council also hasn't been able to to see this as well. We were not provided with uh, yeah. the full report either, um, and that could have been done in camera um, if necessary. But no, to your point, th- these are public documents. These are um, the government's hiring consultants to do the engineering on this, the design work, and the the costing, and all of that should be 100% public. I, I don't understand what there is to uh, to hide in something like this. Um, usually, if there's trade secrets or there's um, information about uh, the the contract, you know, the actual bid process, um, perhaps that would be confidential, but. Even that, I mean, the the whole bidding was uh, was a public public process. So yeah, um, you know, it really doesn't make sense. But uh, I'm I'm trying to cut them some slack here and say, okay, well, maybe it was. A, I can't come up with a, a valid reason because, as you say, these numbers have been out here. They've been out here since this LRT discussion started years and years ago. And some of those numbers, of course, have increased because it's taken so darn long to get this thing going off and get it off the ground. But I, I can't understand why. Invariably, if there's something redacted from a report, uh, it's because there might be confidential information about bid process, uh, you know, costing, etc., like that. You don't want people bidding in public. I get that. But that's all done. And, and there's nothing that I can see anyway in this report that has to be held confidentially away from you and away from me as, and, and everybody else in this community about what's going on. I can't understand that unless, unless it's embarrassing information. And when things get redacted, and, you know, we can go back to the Mueller report about Trump and any other stuff that we've seen that gets redacted, you always have to ask yourself, why is it blacked out? Is it because it's confidential? Is it because there are legal implications? Or is it because it's embarrassing to the government? Well, as a council, we need all the available information in order to make an informed decision, whether it's on a project that's as big as this or or anything that we're working with. And at this point, where now the province has, um, as part of the task force, um, committed to at least $1 billion. If we're now going to be talking to the federal government about funding um, shortfalls and how that's going to be picked up, uh, the, the, you know, we need all the information to work from so that we, we're all working you know, from the same playbook here and not, there's not missing bits and pieces or things that we didn't know about. Um, and the federal government's going to have to, uh, you know, if they're looking at funding part of this, um, get all the information as well. Well, there's another element to this, too, which, of course, is not included in this consultant's report, is the fact that uh, Minister Kathleen McKenna, of course, who originally is from Hamilton, uh, has said that the, the federal government would be interested in kicking in some money if the province is going to move forward on this, and, and, and yet that's not included in there. So when these guys are talking about outrageous costs, which, by the way, uh, have, have not been substantiated by this consultant's report, uh, they, again, don't factor in the fact that they could actually get a reduction on the cost because the federal government may kick money in, too. What i, I got about a minute left here. Let me ask you, with this information, or lack of information, really, that's included in this report, uh, where does council go on this? I mean, the council position still is pro-LRT, and I know that this is a divided council on this issue, and, and I know that it's a divided issue within the community, too, but that was the council position, and up until December, that was the, the pro- provincial government's position, too. Do you push harder now, John Paul, to say, look, at your numbers are, are baloney, this is what we need to do here? Well, this report basically just confirms the position that a number of us have been taking in the winter back in January. At this point, our council is focused on recovery from COVID, a global-wide pandemic, and LRT is a shovel-ready project. The design's done, properties purchased. Uh, we could start this if the funding was confirmed uh, within months. 
And it's, it's that kind of thing that we need uh, now more than ever to kickstart our city's economy and, uh, you know, just get on with things, really. Absolutely. John Paul Danko, uh, Board 8 Councillor. As always, JP, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Thanks, Bill. We'll uh, follow the story up. As we say, uh, Andrea Horvath is releasing the report so everybody can get eyes on it, I guess, uh, a little bit later on today. And uh, obviously we'd like to see some of those redacted portions too. So this is a story that's not going away, and we'll certainly stay with it for you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some people scrambling because of the announcement yesterday from the Trump administration that they are once again imposing tariffs, a 10% tariff on some aluminum products that are coming from Canada. Uh, we'll get into the retaliation, the, what the Canadian government is doing, and maybe if we can try to get some logical explanation as to why Trump's even doing this, we'll try to delve into that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, to give you some context on those, I want to bring uh, Reggie Cicchini, uh, Global News correspondent in Washington, D.C., with his report from last night on Global National. Speaking to a crowd at the Whirlpool plant in Clyde, Ohio, President Donald Trump says he has signed a proclamation that reimposes tariffs on Canadian aluminum. The 10% tariff comes as Trump claims Canada was, quote, taking advantage of the U.S. I signed it and it imposes because the aluminum business was being decimated by Canada. Very unfair. The announcement comes more than a month after reports from Bloomberg claimed the U.S. was looking to hit aluminum imports if Canada did not put restrictions in place, but comes only weeks after the USMCA deal came into effect. Trump's proclamation claims the aluminum threatened U.S. national security. Global News has reached out to the U.S. Trade Representative's office in Washington, but has not heard back. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. Thanks, Reggie, for that report. Uh, it, it, not as a total surprise, I guess, but I mean, you know, with an election going on in the United States these days, but what are the ramifications and is there any justification for this? I want to bring uh, Dr. Peter Warren into the conversation. Uh, Peter, of course, is a senior research fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I was going to ask you if you were surprised by the move yesterday, but I don't think anything Trump does surprises anybody anymore. But was, th was this expected? Well, I think we all went, oh, sigh, here we go again, <laughs> whatever you think of that. I mean, you're within 90 days of an election, and this is a particularly volatile election, so I guess politics is politics. But you're also only one month. We, we spent years negotiating this new NAFTA 2.0, and we got one month out of it, <laughs> you know, before um, uh, some of this stuff happens. I mean, um, first of all, this makes no economic sense in the sense that um, I'm a steel guy, but I'm not addressing steel and aluminum. Steel, North America, Canada, U.S. is re in relative balance. But in aluminum, the Americans produce about 800,000 tons per year. Um, now, keep COVID for a side for the moment. 800,000 mm -hmm. tons. But they actually use uh, a total of about 6 million tons. So compared to the, the, the relative balance in steel, this is, this is pretty far out. So uh, if you're importing 6 million tons, you're getting it from somewhere. Now, my look at the figures is there's been no surge from Canada. There's been a shift in the, some of the composition, but we're shipping about the same tonnage of aluminum, Canada, the USA, uh, that we were before. The, but the Canadian uh, aluminum producers like to do the high-end stuff for the auto industry, but the auto industry is in the, in the dumpster, so they're show, shipping lower-end product. Uh, but there's no change in the overall. So there's been a change in the product mix, but there's been no change in the tonnage. So what, what is this, quote, new threat? Um, um, 
the remaining guys in the U.S. aluminum market are, tend to be higher cost, uh, lower value added products. And um, the uh, Canadians have better numbers than that. But there's been no, there's no, no surge in overall demand. So you have to sort of say, if economics doesn't count, is it just straight out politics? I think it is. It seems to be. I guess one of the most end with the election. Well, no. That's... Well, exactly. Uh, one of the most telling comments, I guess, comes from uh, Tom Dobbins, who is the CEO of the Aluminum Association of America. He's the president and CEO yep. of that company. Uh, says he is incredibly disappointed by Trump's move and uh, says it's only going to add volatility to the industry. Uh, and this is very unlike, I think we had this conversation when the steel and aluminum tariffs were inflicted on us a couple of years ago now, Peter. Yep. Uh, you know, supposedly a concern about national security. But some of the loudest outcry about those tariffs at that time came from the American side, just as it is now. Right, because they need the, they can't produce the aluminum they need. They need the aluminum, particularly the higher end stuff for the defense industry. So what are we talking about, right? Um, the other element to this, too, is that we can get in, I guess, and probably need to once more, get into the philosophical discussion about uh, whether tariffs are beneficial. Just about every economist I've talked to in the last few years tells me they're, they're a dumb idea, but uh, apparently about the only two people in the states that agree with that, and Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross seem to think tariffs are a great idea, and those are two people that seem to have the president's ear on this issue. Well, I mean, also, though, it's the American consumer that pays it. The effect yeah. of this stuff will be to raise aluminum prices in the United States because they cannot produce the volumes that they need, and they, the consumer is going to pay for it. Um, you know, Trump yesterday was in Ohio claiming the, the rebirth of manufacturing, though omitting the impact of COVID on manufacturing. So then we just get out to it's. Most Canadians will remember, we had this you know softwood lumber thing, which was a small number of very politicized, uh, small number of Canadian, American companies, very politicized, who made a big stink. And while again and again and again, the, um, the underlying claim, the economics of that, or the trade policy things, trade law stuff, didn't hold up, it just came back as, remember an old Bela Lugosi movie, The Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> that's, what we're, <laughs> that's what we may be risking here, that this doesn't go away just if, who knows the final outcome, but Biden gets elected. Because the head, this is what I would say on a serious note, the head U.S. trade guy, Robert Leitziger, um, he may go down okay with the Democrats. Uh, so this stuff, I mean, I, we may naively be thinking um, uh, how, gee, if the Democrats come up, this stuff go away. Maybe some of it goes away. But this tends to have a political, ideological life of its own that just goes on and on and on like that, you know, the living dead thing on Netflix, you know. And that might well be the case. You're absolutely right, because there are there are a lot of protectionists on the Democratic side of the, the ledger in, in the states as well. But on again, though, from a, a philosophical standpoint, though, Peter, and I'm glad you brought this point up, uh, Canada doesn't really suffer. I mean, you know, if they have to get the aluminum from someplace, and if they've been buying it from Canada, they're still going to buy it from Canada. They're just going to have to pay more for it. And, of course, as you mentioned, they'll pass that cost on to the consumers. So it's going to cost consumers more. It's going to cost businesses more. 
so so what's what's the benefit to the tariffs? I mean, Trump was bragging about the tariffs we put on China a couple of years ago too, right. which almost decimated the the agricultural industry in the United States, and and the people are still complaining about that, which is maybe why so many of those states in the Midwest uh, where that agriculture was supposed to be thriving are now looking towards voting for Biden uh, because they understand the ramifications. The, the economic yeah. there may not be an economic benefit; there may be a political benefit. You know, and that's exactly. That's, but isn't that's isn't there. But but yes, just because you say you're protecting workers doesn't mean you are. I mean, uh, are, are, is, is he really saving any jobs or creating any jobs by doing this? Um, I don't think so. Uh, and um, the uh, the pandemic problem, which looks out of control in the states, and we all yeah. look upon that with some sympathy, um, it's having a bigger economic effect than any of this stuff. So this is just this is just grandstanding, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, politics is politics. It's, it's unlikely to totally disappear. That's why we have to stay on top of it. Let's, let's talk about the reaction. Uh, Christia Freeland responded saying that they're going to respond in kind. Uh, we're not quite sure how, how that's going to look at this stage. But this is all done, uh, as you've said, with, within the shadow of a new trade deal, the new NAFTA, which yeah, uh, we we're depending on what side of the border we're on. Off, right? Wasn't this supposed to eliminate all this? Yep, it was. But so just just like, from, a, from you know the the um, the uh, softwood lumber thing violated the first NAFTA 1.0 up and down the yin yang. The end of the day, they just kept doing it, and um, we'll we'll just see. I think I think that the um, uh, my worry is that just you just got the United States going more isolationist. You know, protectionism is one mm-hmm. thing, isolation. So they actually look. The Trump group looks like they want to actually undermine the World Trade Organization while saying we should have a rules-based system. So um, the American position, and there's a lot of uh, sentiment in the states in favor of a more, you know, America first thing. That's going to play badly in the long, uh, the long term, but there's no doubt there's a broad sentiment about that that he has either tapped into or created. But again, you know, the the justification for that is is based on a falsehood that it, that you know these things are actually going to help their U.S. Right. economy. Then, unless you know, unless somebody's going to make steel tar- yeah, steel tariffs were paid in the butt. Yeah, for the steel companies, but they made money. <laughs> they made money, maybe not as much money as they hoped for, but uh, they absorbed the ta- uh, tariffs, passed it through, and made money. Exactly. Crazy so, stuff. You know, it, it it is crazy. Well, what about one of the more contentious issues during all those trade negotiations between Lighthizer and Christia Freeland and the others that were involved in in those deals uh, was supposed to be some sort of a dispute mechanism, which I assume they came up with some sort of a compromise on. Yes. Does Canada does Canada make an official complaint about this to, with, through that dispute mechanism, or is it a waste of time? Well, they probably will try. The problem is, I understand, and I'm not I am not a lawyer, but the problem is. When the Americans invoke, quote, national security concerns, I mean, that doesn't have much of a play. I mean, if you're in a war or something, okay. But um, that's a really loose category to be using in a trade case. Because how do you disprove it, right? Yeah. Americans feel threatened, or somebody, company in Ohio feels threatened. Well, I guess they feel threatened. Uh, but um, my two cents, they're more threatened by COVID than they are by this stuff. And you're right because it's 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 a rather you know bizarre way to, to to justify this because I mean national security I guess is it in the eyes of the beholder? In America, it's in the eyes of the beholder. It's in the eyes of the of the Trump administration, I guess. Really, 
Yeah, but don't estimate the appeal of that in in large sections of the electorate. Oh, I, I don't dis yeah, I don't dismiss that for a second. No, yeah, America's position is changing, and um, a day will come where we will find a new balance, but uh, it won't be, uh, and America won't have the same role as it in the past. I mean, as long as you're the reserve currency, I guess this is the final economic argument. As long as you're the reserve currency for the whole world, um, uh, you can tell other people to buzz off. Not Let very me ask pleasant, you about but a realistic conclusion. For those, Peter, who still need the product uh, that have been buying it from Canada, yeah. uh, if, if the idea of tariffs is to say, okay, go find it from someplace else, first of all, nobody's going to ever jump up today and say, I'm going to start an aluminum-producing uh, manufacturing business in, in Ohio, for instance, after you know he made this announcement. That's not going to happen. They still have to get that product. Uh, there aren't too many other places where they can go to get it, can they? Well, true. I mean, we go back to our first point, where the actual yeah. production capacity is 800,000 tons, and they use 6 million. Partly, electricity goes where you can get cheap power. That's why it's in Canada, all that hydroelectric power. But mm -hmm. Canada produced roughly 3 million tons of, of this stuff. And there's other countries like that, like Russia. But then at the top of the list, you got China with 33 million tons of capacity. <laughs> so, you, you like the Trump movie? Where are they going to go? Where On the big scale, where would they get it? China? Well, he's not going there. Well, we'll see. He says he's got a special relationship. <laughs> it just seems special so bizarre because it, it, what day of the week are we talking about here? Where you know, one day he hates China, and you know they're the blame for the virus or the China virus, as right. he calls it, and uh, and their tariffs and, and all this. But the next day, he's a, he's a buddy buddy with the with the Chinese government. I mean, right. it's hard to get a read on this guy. I think the big surprise, if we were having this conversation, we've talked about from a year ago, is how quickly the American establishment has gone over to an anti-China, you know, China yeah. is the strategic, how that shift has taken place. And it now seems to be embedded across the um, political spectrum. But it has to Where are you going to go for aluminum in the world? Well, uh, um, China produces about half the steel in the world. They produce about three quarters of the aluminum. And we've heard this discussion before about Chinese dumping products over here, you know, right. the quality of the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the ultimate decision, I guess, for the, the people that need the, this product, Peter, uh, down in the States, is going to be with them. It's not going to be with the government. I mean, I, I would assume, as they did with steel and aluminum tariffs a couple of years ago, that they're simply going to say, okay, we're just going to have to suck it up and pay this and pass it on to, the, to our, 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 our companies and to our, our our products, and, and that's going to happen. And like you say, it's the consumers that are going to take it in the wallet. I think so. But again, that was true in a fairly buoyant economy uh, of a year ago. Uh, now you've got an economy that's in the dumpster. So this can get ugly pretty quickly. Let's talk about protectionism and, and you know, the America First idea that, uh, that Trump ran on and I'm sure is going to use as one of the pillars of his uh, re-election attempt uh, this year. Uh, from an economic standpoint, uh, you know, in, in, in the year 2020, does it make sense to be isolationist like he seems to want to do? No country is an island anymore. <laughs> so, no, it doesn't make sense. But the system is also going to go there. I expect under the Biden thing, two things are going to happen. One is um, there'll be opening up of what's sometimes called social protection, i.e., 
um, trade cases that may come because of countries who who uh, suppress workers' rights, have pay low wages, that sort of stuff. The sleeper, I think, is what we've just seen in Europe, which is the notion of a border carbon tax. Because the thing about China and all the how they produce the electricity for the aluminum is they got a gazillion coal-fired, terribly polluting uh, uh, plants for aluminum, but also steel and other stuff. So I expect the sleeper here may be, which I think is going to come, uh, uh, of a, a border tax on uh, related to carbon or emissions, if you like. And is there an appetite for that? I think so, yeah. In North America, do you think so? I, it's already there in Europe, and I think it's going to spread because it's, it's the companies are, are justified in saying, you know, we're competing against, we've got a whole bunch of environmental uh, regulations here we have to comply with. Uh, but these other guys uh, pay no attention to that. You know, you go back to the Paris Agreement on the environment. They pay no attention to uh, uh, that. So you can't you can't expect us to compete with uh, an arm tied behind our backs. And they use that to oppose environmental regulation. I think the surprise on trade is going to be a rise, just like we're going to have a Green New Deal and and um, uh, carbon pricing or carbon tax across the board, I think this thing on trade may be the next big move, which indirectly could impact our trade with China more than any other factor. Still lots to come. Well, we don't know if it makes sense or not, but it, it certainly seems that, that there's an inevitability to it, doesn't it? Yep. Peter, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks for the time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Peter Warrior, of course, from uh, the Monk School of uh, Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, something we've been talking about quite some time, and, of course, it's the uh, condition of long-term care facilities. There is a class action lawsuit against some long-term care homes over conditions in these facilities. Uh, our next guest, Golnos Nayarmadi, is an associate at Roshan Genova LLP Barristers who are involved in uh, this legal action. Uh, Golnos, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I've maintained that uh, that the COVID-19 crisis and the negative impact that it had on long-term care facilities uh, exposed what has been going on there for quite some time. Uh, you know, the, some of the dreadful conditions in some of these facilities and the level of care and the, and the overcrowding are things that have been happening for quite some time. So I'm not really surprised that uh, that some of the people or the families of some of the residents there have finally decided to take some legal action. Yeah, you know, there have been long-term sort of systemic deficiencies in the system that had been detected before, and the actors responsible for managing and operating these long-term homes we're aware of, and like you said, these uh, these uh, deficiencies are ultimately exposed by the COVID, um, COVID outbreaks, but um, they were preventable, so these deaths and outbreaks were entirely preventable, um, and that we should have done better. How do you approach something like this? I mean, there's an awful lot of concerned families and parents and, 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 and you know, caregivers that are involved in this right now. Uh, but when you start a class action lawsuit, what is the process and, and how do you go about this and where are you now in that process? So we've, spe- we've spoken with a lot of families. We've spoken with tens of families who've had, uh, who've had family members and loved ones at these long-term care homes in Ontario suffer from uh, not only infections, but also some have passed away, uh, unfortunately. 
And in listening to their stories um, from these different homes, we started detecting certain patterns. And what seemed to be the issue here is the inexplicable delay in taking action and actually taking um, the risks that were, you know, visible and foreseeable from the experiences of these other countries that suffered from um, the pandemic earlier than we did seriously. So we, we've spoken with a lot of family members. We took note of their experiences. We researched these homes and the pattern of the infections and outbreaks that occurred in these homes. And we, we looked at it to see, you know, what went wrong here. And what we found was that there were a great number of long-term care homes in Ontario who did much better, who didn't suffer from outbreaks, uh, who managed uh, to implement measures and protocols in a timely way to prevent what ultimately occurred at many of these other homes. So the 96 homes that are the subject of this class action are the ones where, based on our review of all the material and the numbers, um, had those outbreaks that we say were preventable. And at this stage, we have issued a claim uh, that has been served, uh, that's being served on the defendants. We're in the process of doing that, and the government of Ontario will be added as a defendant as well upon the expiry of the 60-day notice period that's mandated by the legislation. So we see um, both the government uh, and these private actors essentially failing to take the timely, reasonable measures that they should have taken to prevent these outbreaks and to protect um, the most uh, vulnerable members of our society and our elderly. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that. Uh, the overwhelming majority, of, of course, of these long-term care facilities are privately owned, uh, private companies, uh, for-profit companies, but the government does own some. Uh, are both included in, in this class action lawsuit? Have you found culpability, I guess uh, more to the point, alleged culpability with both the private and publicly owned? Yes, we have. So the, the homes that are the subject of this lawsuit um, include homes that are both privately owned and operated, and those that are owned by uh, municipalities, cities, the government. So um, we, we found that the patterns were similar among those homes, and they, they should be included in the action. So with that in mind, then, as, as this uh, this whole process proceeds, uh, uh, as, as we say, this may go to court, it may not. We don't know how some of these things work, of course. There can be out-of-court settlements in this. But are, are people still allowed to join in on this class action lawsuit? As, as you and I have this discussion today, I'm sure there may well be some people that listening that, that have loved ones in some of these facilities that say, yeah, you know something, I was victimized and my family was victimized by that. Can they join on? Absolutely. So, so in a class action, as a, it, this is a proposed class action, so the way it moves through the process in the court system is that when, when you bring a class action, everyone who falls in the what we call the class definition, so all persons at this time who, has, who are members, residents of these homes and their family members are currently included or presumptively okay. included until the action is certified by the court. And then at that point, individuals who don't want to be a part of it can opt out, so they, they don't have to be included. But they can definitely reach out. We have been speaking with a lot of the families, uh, taking note of their circumstances, and um, and we're, we're here and available to speak with them and provide them with more information. But they they don't they don't have to at this point join in the class. They they can get more information um, from us, and they can they can sort of assess uh, their their circumstances. And we're here to provide that information. 
It, it may be an elementary question, but have you had a response yet from the industry about this? Uh, we've spoken with the ministry about this. Uh, they have not been formally uh, included as a defendant yet because there is that 60-day period that's mandated by the legislation where you have to provide notice. So we have been in contact with them and we've spoken with them. Um, and uh, we'll see uh, what their position will be. So uh, for those that may have some interest in this and want to get some more information, uh, just reach out to, to your law firm then, and, and perhaps that might be the best first step? Yes, the best step would be to reach out to law, our law firm. We have um, lawyers and clerks who are ready and available and um, with knowledge of this case who are available to help and assist uh, with any questions that people might have, any more information that they might need, and they can certainly uh, choose to include themselves in this uh, lawsuit and uh, receive ongoing information about it. Well, Roshan Genova, uh, LLP Barristers, uh, if, you can Google that and get all the details. And I'm sure you've got a web page as well, I would think. We do. We have a web page uh, on our website that is dedicated to this action. Um, and we have specific uh, information about how to contact us. So if anyone uh, is interested, they can visit our website or they can call our law firm. Um, at 416-363-1867 and ask to speak about someone with, uh, with respect to a long-term care class action. Don, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this. I was fascinated by this story because we've spent a lot of time on this program uh, talking about the uh, the plight of uh, some of the families in long-term care facilities, and it's come to everybody's attention, I think, now because of COVID-19 and, and some of the concerns, even all the way to Queen's Park and the Premier's office, who's, uh, who's now vowed that he's going to clean this industry up. Uh, but uh, there's obviously some culpability and some concerns about the way things that happen through this pandemic as well. So we'll stay in touch and see how this develops. Thank you again for the time today. Great talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, we also look forward to bringing accountability to this situation. There are a lot of families who are um, who have been devastated by the loss of their loved ones and are asking what went wrong. And um, it's clear that um, we need to take these issues seriously to prevent future uh, future tragedies like this. So thank you for having me. Amen to that. Thanks so much, Galnaz. We'll talk again soon. Galnaz Nehramedi, of course, from uh, Roshan Genova LLP Barristers. If you want to get some details, just uh, Google them and uh, get all the details from their uh, webpage. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.